All right, so last week we saw Israel's glorious return to Yahweh, right? They, um, in chapter 7, they, we studied it through the lens of the three then Samuels, right? The first then Samuel, he speaks to the house of Israel, and he tells them to repent from their idolatry, to turn away from their idolatry. The second then Samuel that we saw, he prays an intercessory prayer for Israel, right? First for their sins against God, and then for deliverance from worldly enemies. And finally, we looked at the at the third then Samuel, as we saw Samuel setting up a monument to remind the Israelites of what God had done for them. Uh, yesterday, we celebrated, uh, we had a celebration of life for uh, a church member of ours named Carol Hines. Some of you knew her, some of you didn't. She used to come in and she'd sit right back there where Gabe and Linda are sitting right back there. And uh, she uh, always had a, glittery hat on, right, and it always had a tag on it, and somebody remembers, what's the, what's the actress's name? Minnie Pearl. Minnie Pearl, thank you, Minnie, I, I can never there was an actress named Minnie Pearl that used to always keep her tags on there, and that's why she kept her tags on there, so she was, she was in the back there, so we had a celebration of life for her yesterday, and uh, towards the end, she her, her quality of life was severely degraded, she couldn't hear very well, um, she uh, had a hard time with pain, and um, yesterday was all about celebrating the fact that she's with Jesus now. Amen. She doesn't need hearing aids anymore. She, she can see perfectly. She doesn't have to use the walker anymore. She's running, running with Jesus right now. That's our hope, right? That's our Ebenezer, right? That's our reminder of the hope that we have in Christ. Uh, we saw last week the ever-important phrase, but the Lord, right? But the Lord came in. And while we were yet still sinners, but the Lord came in and died on the cross to save us from our sins. So today, just like last week, we're going to wrap up just the last little bit of chapter 7, and then uh, we're going to head into chapter 8 for the rest of our study. If you came here today and you ran out of the door forgot your Bible and whatnot, uh, shoot your hand up. We'd love to bring you a copy. Anybody need one? Okay, perfect. Nobody needs one? Good job bringing your Bibles. Um, we're going to start off by reading a small section of, of chapter 8 together, and then I'm going to exposit the rest of it as we go. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to be reading uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1, going through verse 9. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, and took bribes perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing so to you. Now listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. Lord Jesus, we are blind, be our light. Ignorant, be our wisdom. Self-willed, be our mind. 
Open our ears to quickly listen to your spirit's voice and make our desire to run after your beckoning hand. Melt our conscience so that no hardness remains. Make us feel even the smallest prick of evil in our heart. Oh, that we may love you as you love us. That we may walk worthy of you, my Lord. That we might be a reflection of the image of heaven's firstborn. May we always see your beauty with the clear eye of faith and feel the power of your spirit in our hearts. Unless you move mightily in us, no inward fire will be kindled. Amen. You may be seated. So, reading the Old Testament and watching the people of God, watching the Israelites, uh, as, as you go through the, the Old Testament there, it's kind of like riding on a roller coaster, right? There's, there's ups and there's downs, and, and last week we climbed up to the very tippity top, right? They were worshiping Yahweh, their God, with their whole heart. They got rid of the Baals and the Asherah poles, and, and they turned to serve the Lord only. And they trusted in the Lord, and, and Samuel prayed for that, that great prayer for them and offered up a suckling lamb. And we got to watch uh, God lay a smack down on the Philistines, right? And that, such a, a cool story. I, I, I want to see it. I, I hope that we get like instant replays when we get to heaven. Actually see it, you know? But can you imagine? Like these dudes, these dudes are used to hacking on each other with swords, and they came up, and a thunderstorm came down so terrifying that they turned tail and ran. And and not like, oh, I'm gonna run over here and hide in the cave. They ran for miles, miles, right? so cool to see. And all was right in the land. There was peace between the Israelites and the Amorites. And as a result of this, we see the uh, we see this in, in Samuel 7. Uh, if I can get there. Samuel 7 verse 15. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there. And there he judged Israel and built there an altar to the Lord. If you've spent much time studying the Old Testament, you know that when things are this good, it's not going to stay that way. <laughs> and this is where it feels like a roller coaster for us, right? In chapter 7, we see the majesty and the power of Yahweh, and, and we see... The, the, the Israelites serving the Lord and then alone, and then in chapter 8, we see what happens when the Israelites allow the culture to influence them, right? the culture that's around them to trump the will of God. But we need to remember this as we read these passages. There, there can be great lengths of time in between verses. Right? So we read uh, that Samuel builds an altar to the Lord there in that last verse. And then we scroll down one line, and Samuel's old, right? He goes from, literally, in the flick of an eye for us, he goes from middle-aged to old. And even though it feels like that to us sometimes, right? We feel like, I get so old so fast, right? In, 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 our, in our story, he goes very quickly. Now, the reason I belabor this point is because we need to understand that decline takes time. Decline in a nation takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not... Uh, one huge choice usually. It's a lot of little choices as you go. Little choices throughout time that slowly turns the will of that nation away from God. Right. What is the will of God? Brandon spoke about this in youth group, Virginia. That's Brandon right there. Brandon, can you wave your hand? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to Virginia yesterday. She didn't know who Brandon was. 
So I want to make sure you guys know each other, right? That's Brandon. Brandon was talking about uh, in youth group. Uh, he was talking about the will of God. He taught out of 1 Thessalonians 4. You remember being young? It's easier for some of you than it is for me to remember being young, right? Remember being a sophomore, junior, high school, maybe senior, maybe even in college. And you want to know the will of God. I want to know the will of God. I want to know what he wants me to do. And what we're really saying is, I want a trip ticket. You guys remember those? I said that and I realized probably nobody remembers what a trip ticket is. Uh, we want a Google Maps. Is that better? We, we, want, a, we want a destination, right? You're going to go here, then you're going to go here, then you're going to go here, then you're going to go here. What is the will of God? First Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Amen. And I remember when I was still an army, but I was pretty young, and, and I went to a pastor, uh, and I said, I want to know the will of God. I want to know what he wants me to do. And I, what do I do? And he said, I don't know, pray or something? <laughs> <laughs> Which is good. I should pray, absolutely. But doggone it, it was right there in the Bible, right in black and white. First Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification, it comes after justification, right? You're justified when you place your faith in Christ. Sanctification is the rest of your life turning towards Christ. Those little decisions that you make every day that turn you more towards Christ. Sanctification. What we're about to witness is Samuel's doing of the will of God. His continuing in the daily decisions to make his life more conform to the will of God. He's doing what Paul would write about just over a thousand years later in Romans 12. Right? We, we know about Rome. We know uh, that the Roman Christians were surrounded by wickedness. The Caesars were there. They believed themselves to be God. They, they persecuted the Christians. There was all sorts of uh, deities. There was multiple deities. Right? They worshipped just about anything. They moved, they worshipped it. Sometimes even if it didn't move. And so we see uh, Paul here in Romans 12, uh, starting in verse 1, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You know, you don't just worship here, right? When you walk through the door, it's not like, okay, now it's time to worship. Ooh, it's church. That's not how it works. All week long, those decisions that we make that, that are Christ-like, that's worship. We're worshiping God at that moment. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what Samuel is doing. His outer man is decaying, yet his inner man is renewed day by day. And so we read that Samuel, in verse 1, was old. He appointed his sons judges over Israel. There's Joel and there's Abijah. And his, his sons did not walk in his ways. Notice the his in there is not capitalized. It's not saying they didn't walk in God's ways. They didn't walk in Samuel's ways. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after their dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. And we think back to, to Eli and the story of of his two sons, and we know that Eli was corrupted uh, with them. He loved the Lord, but uh, as they stole from the Lord, as they took that meat that was supposed to be given to God in sacrifice and enriched themselves, right? Eli joined in with them. We read about that. And we, we read that when he died, he was old and heavy, right? Because he'd been stealing all of the best food 
along with his sons. But Samuel, the mighty Samuel, the mighty man of God, surely he didn't neglect his family Bible study, right? Surely he was leading the nation in, in prayers and sacrifices, and his family would have been there. His sons would have seen him do that. They would have witnessed him reading out of the Torah. Four kids. One of the most difficult things for a parent to watch is to watch their child go astray. See the culture envelop them and twist them. We don't know what happened to Joel and Abigail. They're, they're mentioned uh, one other place. It's in 2 Chronicles, somewhere, I think it's around chapter 6 somewhere. And, and really, it's just kind of a, these were the sons of Samuel, Joel and Abigail. So we don't know what happened to them. But this is a stark reminder that on Judgment Day, we will stand alone before God. Doesn't matter if your daddy was a preacher, if your mommy was a Sunday school preacher or a teacher, or if your family worked tirelessly in the church and came to every church work day and vacuumed up and, and cleaned everything and fixed things and served on every committee in the church. It does not matter because God will look at us individually. And he's going to ask us that important question. He's going to say, why should I let you in my presence? Why should I let you in my peace? And only one answer will suffice. I'm heavy in Romans today, so I'll use another one. Romans 10.9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. So Joel and Abijah did not follow in their father's footsteps. And they directly violate the Torah. Deuteronomy 16 19 tells us that uh, you shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Of the righteous. And so they, they damaged Israel. They damaged them, and we see that in verse 4 there. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they, they come to Samuel, he's at Ramah, and they say to him, Behold, you've grown old. And you kind of want to insert a little, duh. <laughs> yes, he's grown old, right? My wife and I, at our bus, in, in, after a class one day, uh, one of the moms came on, and they brought the little brothers. I can't remember the boy or girl came on the bus. And I usually wear a hat in class, and I was taking the hat off. And the little kid had seen me before. And the mom was talking to Allison, and all of a sudden, the little kid looks at me and goes, You're bald! <laughs> <laughs> and, and the mom, you know, the look on that mom's face was just priceless, you know. She's like, she's, 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 no, no, mom, he's bald! <laughs> Behold, you have grown old. <laughs> your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Now I hesitate to lay the full burden of this demand for a king at Samuel's son's feet. To be sure, they were, they were a catalyst or more likely an excuse. But look back at the elders' request again in verse 5. Right? They, you're old, your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. And at first blush, the problem isn't really apparent, right? Because uh, Genesis 17, 6, Genesis 35, 11, God's giving promises to Abraham, and he says, from you will come kings, right? So 
They knew there were, there were going to be kings. If you turn to Deuteronomy, uh, look at in chapter 17, uh, God actually dictates what to do when the Israelites go into the, the land and want a king. Right? Starting in verse 14, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over you, like all the nations who are around you, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen, you shall set as a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. But if you look back at verse 5, right? What do they want? They want a king that judges us like all of the other nations around us, right? Like a king that will judge by worldly standards. Because they had a king, right? God was the king. And he used his judges and his prophets to, to speak to his people, but they had a king, but they wanted a king that would judge them like the nations around them. What nations? Right? They were surrounded by the Philistines. But the Philistines didn't have kings. If you remember the story before, when they sent the ark back, they had the little golden mice and the little golden tumors, and there were five of them, one for each lord of the Philistines. So who would they have been talking about there? Well, the Assyrians. The Assyrians had a king. The Egyptians had a king. Just like that, the Israelites want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to Egypt. And if you don't believe me, just hang on, because the elders will tip their hand a whole lot more here in a minute. But for now, look at verse 6. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel was displeased. And it's not difficult to understand why, right? They're asking for a king to judge them. Well, he was the judge. I mean, that'd be like that'd be like you guys got coming up and being like, we want a, a, a pastor to preach to us. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'm standing right here, right? We want a king to judge us. And if the real issue was Samuel's sons, they could have been replaced, right? They, you could have put godly judges in there. But these ungrateful Israelites wanted something new. Something more like the cultures around them. Change for change's sake. And if there's anyone out there who has ever been offended by someone else, who's, who's come to church and, and, and you know, somebody said something sharp to them, or uh, they've been insulting to them, Samuel gives us the perfect demonstration of what to do when that happens. Right? He takes us to God in prayer. He doesn't, he doesn't go to his neighbor and complain about it, right? He doesn't go to other people in the church and, oh, did you hear what happened? No, 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 no. He takes it to God in prayer. And then God gives the answer to Samuel that every one of us who has ever shared Jesus with someone or led a Bible study or done a missions trip or, or led Sunday school, we all need to hear this and understand it. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people. In regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. When the word of God goes out and it's rejected, that person isn't rejecting you. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting the king. And there's freedom in that, right? We know that, that when we go out and we share this king with people, and they say, no, it's not because of me. It's not my big goofy face that caused them to reject it. Continuing in verse 8, 
God speaking now, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. You read that and you think of Moses, right? Remember when Moses went up on the mountain? And he's, he's up there with God. The Israelites are all kind of standing around looking at each other. Uh, it was kind of boring. Hey, Aaron, make us a God. Make us a God that we can see. I want to see our God. I want to worship him. Right? And then you hear Aaron's lame excuse. I threw the gold into the fire and the calf called fell. <laughs> Aaron made him a calf, right? And they worshiped the calf. The Israelites had a king. They had a perfect king. But just like when Moses went up on the mountain and the people got antsy in the pansy and they had Aaron make them that God, they're doing it now again. And God says, don't worry, Sam. I've been dealing with these knuckleheads for a long time. And he continues in verse 9. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them the procedure of the king who will reign over them. Verse 9 sends shivers down my spine. It's terrifying when you think about it. God tells Samuel to give the people what they want. Have you ever thought about that while you're praying? What if God gives us exactly what we want? Some of the older folks out there know what I'm talking about. Some of the younger folks are like, yeah, sounds good. I need a new, new Prius, new Tesla, right? Give it 10 years. Write this date down in your Bible. Write a date down in your Bible. Ten years from now, go back and look back at all the prayers that you've ever prayed. And I guarantee you, ten years from now, you're going to be like, thank you, Jesus, for not answering that one. <laughs> I was so wrong. I was so off base. But did you know that sometimes God says yes when it's one of judgment? You go to Romans 1, the later part of the chapter, God's wrath is poured out on people that knew there was a God. Verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. They have no excuse, right? God has displayed himself in our world to the point where on that final judgment day, when we all stand before God, there's not one person that's going to be able to say, wait a minute, I didn't know. I didn't know. Time out. <laughs> Every knee will bow. You can keep reading in Romans, especially if you want to understand the, the insanity in our culture today. It, it, it outlines it. Keep talking. This is going to happen. 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 And then you go back and you look at our history and you just watch it happen. We're a nation under judgment. A good example of this happened last month. The Episcopalian Church in July of this year voted to affirm and advocate access to gender-affirming care in all forms and at all ages. The resolution B066 reads as follows. Resolved, the House of Bishops concurring, that the 80th General Convention celebrates the diversity of the human experience recognizing that we are all made in the image of God, and be it further resolved that the 80th General Convention calls for the Episcopal Church to advocate for access to, to gender-affirming care in all forms, social, medical, and any other, and at all ages. 
as part of our baptismal call to respect the dignity of every human being. Thank you, Jesus. To that, I would respond in Romans 1.28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So God gives the people what they want. Not because he's changed his mind, not because he said, well, gosh, those guys down there on that little rock down there figured it out. I'll do what they said. He does it as judgment. And it's not blind judgment. It's punishment, right? Like a father. Like when we discipline our children, we shouldn't be punishing out of anger. We should discipline our children with the whole thought process of bringing them back into right relationship with God and with us. Right? That's how we punish. That's how God punishes. Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those that he loves. And in telling Samuel to warn the people, he uses the word procedure there in verse 9. The procedure of the king. Uh, another word that you could use to translate there would be justice. The justice of the king. And he's saying, look, in Deuteronomy I gave you a really good outline of, of what a king should do. right? But I want you to warn them of the procedure of this king that they're going to put in there because it's going to be just like all the other kings and all the other cultures out there. So you need to warn them because it's not going to be like the king I said about. It's going to be just what they want. They want a king like all the other cultures. They're going to get a king just like all the other cultures. And so he says, uh, starting in verse 10, so, uh, so Samuel uh, spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure, the justice, of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do this plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equip his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. Servants there is not like uh, the guy that shines shoe in the castle does a really good job so he gives them a plot of land. No, servants is like uh, people on his cabinet, right? People that are helping him rule. He says, you're doing a good job, so I'm going to take land from this person and I'll give it to you. And that person can say no because he's king. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. It's interesting. When you listen to this warning, the whole reason they came to Ramah, the whole reason they came to Samuel was because his two sons were taking bribes. Right? And they, they, they were being unfair in their judgment. And they were taking, they were on the take. And here, the king that they're asking for is going to be even worse. He's going to be even worse. He's going to take everything. He's going to take their kids. He's going to take their land. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Back in verse 18, it says, Then you will cry out in the day because of your king. That, that phrase there should sound familiar if you've read Judges. right? Because when, when I talked about Judges before, remember I mentioned there's a cycle. 
the Israelites would start worshiping other gods and they would, they would start uh, sinning. And so God would allow their enemies to come in and bother them and, and crush them. And so they would cry out to God. And God would raise up a judge, and that judge would free them. And then that judge would die, and then the people would go back to worshiping other gods. The enemies would come in, they'd cry out, God, judge is raised up. It's a cycle. But in verse 18, he says, Then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You got what you wanted. The, uh, verse 19 and 20 there is that tipping of the hand I told you about. Right? Look, at, look at the reason that they want the king there. That we may be like all the other nations. That our king may judge us. Right? They want a king that will judge them according to the world instead of God's judgment. And go out before us and fight our battles. And you read that and you want to go, are you serious? Are you kidding me right now? Go back a chapter. And this, this is what I was talking about. There's time that has elapsed here. But still, 20, 30 years. I mean, that was a thunderstorm that, that the thunderstorm of thunderstorms, right? You guys remember storms that happened when you were younger, right? Like Hurricane Katrina. You can say that and people remember it, right? This was like Hurricane Katrina. I mean, it was huge. But, but we want a, a guy to walk out in front of us. Pointing, okay, now I will. Are you kidding me? This God that can send thunderstorms and you want a dude that'll walk out there and get shot with an arrow. after Samuel heard all the words of the people, he defeated them in the Lord's name. Oh, to be a fly on the wall for that day, right? God, did you hear what they said? The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. God confirms that he wants Samuel to listen to people, to the people. And that's terrifying. God says, Never mind what I say. Go ahead and listen to the people. May this never happen in our church. The second that we listen to men and not God, to the culture and not the Bible, and when feelings become king instead of Jesus, we are doomed. So God says, give them what they want. Samuel says, go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm a, it doesn't say in the Bible, but I'm willing to bet, right? There were probably some guys in there that were like, well, since we're getting a king, I'd be a, I'd be a good king. Right? Take me. Samuel says, go ahead. We're going to pick who the Lord wants. He doesn't cave to the culture there. So next week we'll see how that turns out. Spoiler alert. We're not at the bottom of the roller coaster yet. It's going to get worse. But as we wrap up chapter 8, I think it's important to ask the question, who cares? What's the point of this whole king nonsense here in the 21st century? We don't have kings anymore. There's a queen over there in England, but she didn't care much, right? Well, the point is this. People today, our neighbors, maybe even our family, they're all looking for a king. Not the perfect king, but a king that they can see. They cast about looking here and there, but they're never looking towards the one true king. But look at the New Testament, Matthew 2.2. 2. 
Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? John 1, verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Matthew 21, verses 4 through 5, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. It's his triumphal entry. And it says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king has come to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The king is here. He's here. And this is a king that gives and doesn't take. The king whose burden is light and his yoke is easy. But the world looks at this king and all the while they stamp their feet and say, no, I don't want your king. Give us a king that can judge us according to the world's standards. The culture looks at us as Christians and they say, they're just trash. Bunch of Bible readers, bunch of rules. But what they don't realize is our king is the only way to be worth anything. He's not some cosmic party pooper raining down lightning bolts on anybody that looks like they're having a good time. He's preparing us. He's sanctifying us. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4.3. God's will for our lives is not to be caught up in the things of this world. Living out each moment in the hopes of a newer and better moment. God's will for our lives is about orienting us towards eternity. And the world lies and it says, nah, it's not about keeping you in that body. But the big lie is they aren't having fun. Romans 1 details the judgment of God on a nation of people that just want to have fun. If you follow it, you see people worshiping the created instead of the creator. They're worshiping all the things that they can suck from this life, though they know there's a creator. They demand a worldly king. And God says, okay. And he judges the world by giving them exactly what they want. And what follows is the degrading of a civilization. He gives them up to a depraved mind. A mind that can't even, can't even think right. I've seen some of the debates that have been going on in our country lately. And the arguments, don't, they're not even there. They don't make sense. It's a depraved mind. They continue in their rebellion to the point where they can't even they can't even think straight. To the point where we can't even define what a woman is. They offer up drag queens as role models. They mutilate their children physically and mentally, both in the womb and out of it. Our marriages, covenants before God are torn apart in the name of doing what's good for me, what makes me happy. People are being lost to, to powerful drugs and alcohol. Crime is brazen and heartless. Life is not valued. Just a couple days ago, just down the street here at that little uh, 24-hour fitness down there, there was a shooting. Some people got in an argument over a basketball game. The poor got into the, the parking lot, and people started shooting at each other. They arrested a, a, a 17-year-old kid. 17 years old. Another guy died. All the while, the people of God are warning the world. We're warning them that the king of this world will take everything from them. He warns them through his word, through pulpits across the country. They're warned. But they say no. 
to say no to the king who takes nothing, the king who gives all. Jesus is not like any king on this earth. And so everyone, all of us here today, we're faced with this question. Who is your king? To whom will we swear allegiance? There are two options. First, is this world your king? Is your king yourself, your own desires, your own will, or the fleeting pleasures of this world? Or is Jesus your king? Mm -hmm. The king that gave everything. The king that disciplined like a loving parent. We don't get that in today's culture, right? You can't discipline your kids because that's not loving. Hogwash. Discipline is loving. Setting boundaries. Loving discipline. Bringing them back in right relationship with Christ and with you. That is loving. The beautiful thing about this question is that if you realize that Jesus is not your king, there's nothing today keeping you from making him your king right now. I'm going to finish here shortly, and then we're going to pray. And as the final song, as we sing it there, if you want to make Jesus your king, come down and talk to me. I'd love to share Jesus with you. If you've already made Jesus your king, listen to the word of caution about the dangers of the cultures around us. It's a siren call. It's beautiful, and it's full of excitement. But ultimately, it leads to waves smashed rocks that would tear into pieces. Remember Paul's encouragement. We read it earlier in Romans 12. I therefore urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable. Spend time in the Word. Renew your mind daily. And we need our minds refreshed, don't we? All of the media that we consume, all of, all of the things that we see around us, just pours into our head all day. We need the antidote to the world's poison. And the antidote is God's Word. Yeah. I'm sorry, but I, I just don't want to hear, well, I just don't have time for the Bible. It's hogwash. If I handed you a book today, look, if, if I had a box of books up here and I just handed it out to you, and it was a book on how to make $10 million in one month, you would take that book home, you would, you'd probably want to eat lunch, you'd push everything to the side, and you would read that book. And, and, and before you went to bed, you'd read that book. And you wake up in the middle of the night and reach over and make sure it's still there, right? In the morning, you wake up and you read that book. much more. An eternity. Read your word. Renew your mind. I want to close now with prayer. It's the prayer I prayed yesterday as we celebrated uh, Carol Hines' life. She's with the king now, amen? amen? As I pray, examine yourself and really ask yourself, who is my king? Let's pray. Lord, you are Lord over all kings.
there is one thing in this world that deserves my entire devotion that I can truly be passionate about. It is that I know exactly why you made me, why you formed me in my mother's womb. And that is to glorify the one true God who also loves me and do all the good I can for others. I can honestly say that life is not worth the living if it wasn't improved by this noble purpose. Yet, Lord, how small mankind thinks. Most men seem to live for themselves without much or any regard for your glory or for the good of others. They earnestly desire and eagerly pursue the riches and the honors and the pleasures of this life. And they think that wealth and earthly greatness and lust-filled parties can make their immortal souls happy. Oh God, what false and misleading dreams are these. And how miserable will those be that sleep in them. Because we know that true joy consists in loving you and being holy as you are holy. Oh, may I never fall into the attitudes and vainness, the sensuality and lostness of this world. It is a place of unimaginable sorrow and a vast sea of emptiness. Time is a moment stacked on another moment, a vapor, and all of its enjoyments are empty bubbles, gusts of wind from which no joy can be felt. Give me your perfect grace to always stay in right relationship with you, in your perfect covenant sealed by your son's precious blood, and to reject this outright illusion, the thought of gaining a name in this world and not in heaven. Help me to know continually that there can be no true happiness, no fulfilling purpose for me, apart from a life within and for the son who you love. Will you please stand for the last song? 